Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, you'll find the insert in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, the text itself is written on the back of the insert. And this morning we will um, end a section of Luke's gospel. It'll be our last message in Luke for a few weeks because starting next week we'll begin a a five-week series looking at five key truths of the Reformation, the five solas. But we are finishing a section of Luke. You'll notice that uh, verse 11 in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, picks up the, the, the travel narrative on the way to Jerusalem. And so we're coming to the end of a section, and it's a section where Jesus alternately teaches the disciples and the Pharisees, and as best as we can tell, he does so in the hearing of the other. So while he's teaching the rebuking the Pharisees, the disciples are present. While he's teaching the disciples, we know for certain the Pharisees can hear that because um, they can scoff and they can interrupt. Another characteristic of this discourse that happens as Jesus has been teaching his disciples elsewhere is that as he teaches, he's interrupted by a question which then redirects his teaching, and that's exactly what we'll see here. Um, so we're going to look at the 10 verses. We looked at the first four last week, and we're going to look at the, the last um, five through 10 this week. I'd like to read the entire text. Luke <coughs> chapter 17, verses one through 10. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he, cast, and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you also, and you have done all that you, have been, that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Let's have a word of prayer. We get ready to study this. Lord God, <clears throat> I ask that you'd give me grace to speak as I ought to speak, that you'd give us insight and understanding as we look at um, the nature of faith, the nature of humility, and how that plays out in the Christian life, Lord. Um, you are teaching your disciples in this text, and we would be your disciples. So teach us, instruct us, increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So the primary commands that Jesus gave, we looked at last week. Jesus gave his disciples the command not to lead each other into sin, but rather to lead them out of sin. Rather than being a cause of someone sinning, we should be the ones to correct others from sinning. And that when that happens, the, the glue that holds the body together is, is forgiveness. There's a self-corrective element where when sin is happening, it is dealt with, it is spoken to clearly. And then as repentance, takes place, there's forgiveness. And so the, the loaf, the body, remains pure and whole. 
And that's Jesus' primary teaching. And what we see this week is the response of the apostles to it. It's interesting, this is the first reference of the apostles back in the text since chapter nine. So you have to go all the way back to chapter nine to see the apostles speaking. They, they come to the foreword here. And I think part of that is to emphasize how difficult, how radical and challenging they see Jesus' teaching here to be. Um, if, if you think that what Jesus has said in the first four verses is something doable, um, you, then you are not on the same page as the apostles. The apostles come forward, not just the disciples, speaking of their... <laughs> How, how challenging and difficult they see this to be. They need more faith. That's the response. And so that interruption then leads to Jesus' instruction. And, and what Jesus is basically saying is understanding the nature of true faith and how it works and understanding our identity and having a humble identity will be key for us carrying out his instructions. His instructions of not leading others into sin, when we see sin to deal with it, and when sin is dealt with to forgive it. So we're gonna look at this simply in two points. First, the interruption of the disciples, Jesus' response, and then the parable of the servants. And so point number one, we're gonna look at faith to rebuke and to forgive. Faith to rebuke and to forgive. And it begins with the apostles' request to add to our faith. It's an imperative. They're not saying they don't have faith. When you say increase, literally it's add to. They're saying, we have some faith, but we don't have enough faith to do what you've just said. So understand that that's crucial. The disciples are not saying, we don't believe, we we reject this. Rather, they're saying, we have some faith. But if you want me to forgive my brother seven times in a day, I don't have enough faith for that. Maybe I have enough faith to forgive him two times in a day or three times in a day, but I need more faith if I'm going to be able to achieve this standard of confronting sin when I see it and of forgiving seven times in a day when my brother says I repent. That's, that's the request. And there's something good and right about the request and there's something our Lord's gonna correct because make no mistake, his answer is a corrective. There's something about faith they are misunderstanding. And I think as we look at it, hopefully it'll correct our understanding of faith. So, so get this, the disciples are approaching this issue, this standard, this demand, saying we have some amount of faith, but insufficient faith to, to, to achieve this high of a standard. That, that's what they're saying. Okay, so that's the apostle's request, is to add to our faith. So, let's take a look at what we can learn about faith in this in Jesus' response. Because the Lord says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, what's going on there? Well, let's take a look at three things about faith from this. First, faith's object. Faith's object. It trusts Christ and his word. What are they responding to that they need faith for? They need, respond, they need faith, from their perspective, to receive and obey the command Jesus just gave. And so biblically, if you study the Bible, biblically faith is always responded to what God says. It's not, it's not making something up, I want this to happen and I have faith it will happen. It's always God speaking. You can go to Hebrews 11 and look in every instance of the, by faith Abraham, by faith Moses, God said something and and men and women responded to it in faith. And so here, the need for faith is in direct response to Christ and his word. That's a biblical understanding of faith. Believing, what do you do with what God has said? Here, Christ has given a command, a difficult one. They rightly understand we need faith to respond to this. The object 
of faith. Faith's object here is Christ and his word. That's good. That's right. Next, the thing that we notice that's also true and accurate is the disciples recognize faith's source. Faith's source. It is a gift of God. They get that much right as well, which is good. Faith is not something you well up in yourself. Faith is not something that you sort of generate on your own. And we can sometimes, I think, misunderstand that as if I just need to sort of psych myself up. So I get a feeling of faith. And then after I've worked myself up into faith, then I can go forgive seven times. Because that's the whole approach. The standard is so high, I don't have enough faith. They are not saying, okay, we'll go work ourselves up and our faith up. They recognize the source of faith is God. And Jesus has already said as much back in chapter 10 when he says to you it's been granted to see. Understanding spiritual truth is a gift of God. We took a four-week series in the spring on election predestination, understanding that faith is God's gift. It's not something we manufacture. If you need faith, you need it from God. And they get that correctly as well. That's, that's good. But Jesus' response about the mustard seed being uprooted and planted in the ocean, I think corrects something they misunderstand, okay? So point D here, faith's power, it creates impossible obedience. It it creates impossible obedience. Now Jesus has already used the example of a mustard seed as something very small. Back in chapter 13, verse 19, where he talks about the kingdom of God is like the mustard plant, which grows and gets big. And the whole contrast there is between how small the seed is and how big the tree can become. So I don't think what Jesus is saying is you, you do have some faith, but it's not mustard seed faith. It must be like atomic faith or molecular faith. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think the whole thing that Jesus is rejecting, the corrective he's giving, is that they misunderstand how faith works. They misunderstand how faith works. It is not the case that you have faith sufficient to forgive, say, five times in a day, but if you had more faith, you could get up to six times in a day, and with more faith, yet seven, and so, Lord, sorry, I only have enough faith to obey part of what you said, but rather that faith is the thing where God creates the work in us. Now think of his example. It's meant to be hyperbolic. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted this seed and it would obey you. Now that is hyperbolic. There's no good purpose in doing this. There's no need to do this. Um, and yet God has commanded people like say Moses to speak to a rock and a river would come out. God has told Ezekiel to preach and prophesy over a valley of dead bones and speak. And in every instance, if this were to happen, I want you to imagine somebody actually does try this and this happens. They see mulberry bush, be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it were to obey and respond. Who would we understand the power is coming from? That person? No, of course not, God. When Moses spoke to the rock, when Moses struck the rock and water came out, It was not power from Moses accomplishing this. When Ezekiel preached over the valley of dead bones and they came to life and sinew came back to them, it was not Ezekiel's power, it was God. And and I think that Jesus' corrective is something like this. We tend to think that it is our faith and the strength and degree of our faith that enables us to obey God's commands. And in that understanding then, faith becomes the, the engine, the fuel, the motor, that powers the motor of obedience. 
Rather, faith is that which enables God to act. So just as Moses speaking to the stone would have caused, he, he didn't actually speak, he struck it, but that was the command. It would have been God making the water flow. Just as Ezekiel preaching and prophesying over the, the valley of bones would have been God acting, so too when God gives us a command like this, our faith is that which enables and causes God to work it in us. If, if we're gonna to forgive to this impossible standard, it's not gonna be in our own strength, it's gonna be the gift of God. Or, or to put it another way, the way to approach God's demands that are difficult and challenging like this is not to think of faith in some sort of aggressive scale. I have faith enough to forgive six times, but not seven. I can forgive five of my enemies, but not six of my enemies. Rather, what God commands, he, by virtue of his command, will enable us to do, and faith is believing, God will give me the strength to forgive the seventh time. God will give me the strength I'm believing, my faith is that God will, through his spirit and his word, give me the ability to do these things. Let me use an illustration, try to make this clearer, that D.A. Carson used. I I posted it on Facebook this morning and I shamelessly rip it off, don't claim any originality to it, but it's so good, I didn't think it could be improved upon. So you can watch the original on Facebook, but talking about this, he said, imagine two Jews go up and they're having a conversation on the day before the angel of death goes through the land in Egypt. The day that they were to apply the blood of the lamb to the lentils of the doorposts. And two Jews who have done this are talking. And one of them, in sort of fear and trembling, says, you know, Zebediah, I really am a little nervous about tonight. I only have one boy, and man, do I love him. And I don't know how I'd live without him. To which his friend Zebediah says, um, but you, you, you heard what Moses said and you slaughtered the lamb and you, you applied the blood. Well, of course, of course, that's what God said to do, but I'm ner-. Well, Zebediah says, well, if God says it, I'm, there's nothing that could happen. Bring it on. I'm not worried. I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. To which his first friend says, yeah, I know, I know. I know God says that. But still, I'm just, I'm afraid the angel of death is going through. Man, I, I don't know if I'll sleep a wink tonight. They break and they go home, and the angel of death goes to the land. Which of those two men loses their son? Neither. It's not the power and the strength of their faith that protected their children. It was believing what God said enough to act on it. It was the object of their faith that accomplished the work. It wasn't the strength of their faith. It wasn't as though Ezekiel had to really, really, really have a lot of faith to make those dry bones come to life. As though Moses were supposed to understand the strength of Moses' faith. If he had more faith, the river coming out of the rock would have been bigger. No, God gave a word and they responded in faith. And then God acted and God kept his word. And what Jesus is saying is when God gives us commands that seem impossible, and there's a sense in which they are impossible. Unless God shows up and God does it, unless God does the work, we can't do this. Our faith is not the thing that we just psych myself up to forgive that seventh time. Rather, the logic is, this is what my God and master commands of me. And I'm weak, but he is strong, and he has given me his spirit, and he has given me his word. And I'm trusting that he will give me what I need to do this. And I'm gonna go start trying to act like that's the case. So it's, it's not the degree, the strength of faith. 
Because if that's the case, we, Jesus' is, is illustration just means they've got like subatomic faith. No, what he's saying is all it takes is a mustard seed amount of faith for God to act powerfully. And so as we approach God's commands, it can be sort of a cop-out. You know, Some people have enough faith to forgive. I don't. I still have some faith. I'm not in rebellion. I'm not in disbelief. I just don't have enough faith to forgive this person. No. Faith is believing the promise that God will enable us to forgive. Faith is trusting that God will act so we can do these things. And that's how Jesus is correcting them here. Understanding true faith, having the faith to rebuke and the faith to forgive. These are difficult and impossible things God is calling us to. Our faith is not working ourselves up till we can go do it, but rather recognizing, and there's, like I said, there's something right here. The disciples recognize their inability to do this. Good for them. The disciples recognize they need faith. Good for them. They recognize the source of faith. Good for them, but they, they still have this graduated scale. And Jesus is saying, no, all it takes is just a tiny amount of real faith, and God will act. Just as God would be the one to rip up the mulberry tree and plant it in the sea, not you, God will act. Faith to rebuke and to forgive. Faith to rebuke and to forgive. And second, humility to serve and to obey. Humility to serve and to obey. And now he tells them a parable the unworthy slaves. Now the ESV translates it servants, but these are slaves. Again, the whole parable only makes sense if you understand these as slaves. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, and you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I think the logic here is this. Jesus is suggesting that how we view ourselves in relationship to him, how we view what we're doing when we obey is of importance in our obedience. And as the disciples reel at this standard of forgiveness and rebuke, Part of their problem is not really understanding yet their relationship to Christ. The humility to serve and to obey. So first, we look at the parable of the unworthy slaves. And the parable really only has two points. First, slaves are not honored for their obedience. Slaves are not honored for their obedience. It's, It's what they're supposed to do. It's the nature of a slave. You are totally under the authority of another. And so it is right and fitting for you to do their will. And so when they obey and when they do what they're told, it's good as far as it's good, but it's not something which they get celebrated for. And we, we can maybe make this comparison here when you go into work. And I know, I know at Christmas time there can be bonuses and there can be times for employee of the month, but in general, your, your, your managers, your bosses are not thanking you, giving you presents, giving you hours off simply because you've done your work and done it well, are they? There's a sense in which, well, no, that's what you're there for. That's what you're being paid for. And so what Jesus is, is picturing is some slaves who have done most of the day's work. More work remains. They've, they've done their work. And he's identifying that if you truly understand that relationship as someone's servant, as someone's slave, then how ridiculous is it 
to say, okay, I've done my work, now it's time for you to serve me. You can imagine the, uh, the waitress at the restaurant, the waiter at the restaurant, who you show up to sit, and they say, actually, I've been, I've been working really hard all night, why don't you go serve me, you can go tell the cook what I want, I'm gonna sit down here. That, that, that wouldn't fly. Imagine the, uh, the realtor who you know, works you through, helps you, walks your hand through, does a good job helping you own and buy a house, and then when you show up to move in, there's their move-in truck as well. I figured after all the work I did, I should have a month or two in this home first. That, that wouldn't work. Likewise, a slave who's, who's been faithful, they've done what they've been told to do. What, what do they get? Do, do they get honor for that? No. That, that they've done what they're supposed to do. And we have modern vernacular, we'll say something, do you want a cookie? Like, you want a badge? What? You've, you've done what you're supposed to do. Good for you. Okay, great. And that's what Jesus is saying. Well, what is... What's the second point? And second, slaves must fulfill all their duty. It's not that this master's harsh. It's not that this master's unreasonable. There is more for them to do. And once they've completed their duty, yes, then they will eat. Then they will, then they will get a break. But they need to finish their work. Just because you've done up to this point everything you need to do doesn't give you the right to stop as a slave and, and say, actually, I, I think it's time for me to be waited on. No, you're going to finish your job. You're going to finish all of it. And he comes in from the field, does not say, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. So that's, that's the point of the parable. What's the point for us? That's, that's the two things. Servants don't get honored. Slaves don't get honored and celebrated for doing their job. And slaves must fulfill all of their duty, not just some of it. Okay, so what's, what's that mean for us? Five, five things I want to look at briefly. First, how we view ourselves will directly affect how we obey Christ. How we view ourselves will directly affect how we obey Christ. How do, where do I get that from? Verse 10 seems to be the application. Jesus applies what he's just said which is something they're all supposed to agree with. This isn't supposed to be controversial. They're all supposed to say, of course, that's the way slaves and masters, servants and masters work. So you also, Jesus says in verse 10, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. Jesus wants us to speak of ourselves, and this gets back to self-identity, who we are. The application most immediately for us is how are we to speak of and regard ourselves as we obey? And so what's the implication? How we speak of and how we regard ourselves will directly affect how we obey Christ. I don't think that's a stretch. And here is where Jesus' instruction so radically differs from our culture. Our culture is convinced that most of our problems stem not from thinking too highly of ourselves, but from thinking too lowly. Right? I mean, imagine going in and talking to the school guidance counselor and saying what, what Billy's problem is, is Billy doesn't regard himself as an unworthy slave. That's Billy's problem. He, he, if you could help Billy, um, he, he, he thinks he's a sunbeam. I mean, he, he thinks he's a snowflake. <laughs> could you help Billy? We're, we want you to help us. The mom and dad are trying to help Billy understand you're, you're an unworthy slave. But that's exactly what Jesus says here. So get that. It's completely at odds with our culture. Our culture says the reason you struggle, the reason why you have problems, the reason why you have relationship issues is you don't think highly enough of yourself. 
You don't esteem yourself highly enough. You have low self-esteem, which is rarely the case. Rarely the case. It is something, and that's, that's a message for another time, but I, my, my old pastor used to prove the point this way. He was sitting at a de- chair in the um, cafeteria watching a, a, a young lady go through the, the line who he'd been meeting with, doing some pastoral counseling with, and um, she was stopped at the salad area, and she was... Um, going through the, the container of you know, baby tomatoes, cherry tomatoes. And he uh, was telling us about this. He didn't reveal the person's name or anything. And he said, you know, you know what she was doing, right? She thought so poorly of herself. She thought, I'm going to get the worst cherry tomatoes for myself. Well, of course, that's not what she was doing. <laughs> she was finding the best, the ripest, the juiciest cherry tomatoes. And she thinks just fine of herself. I've never seen someone say, you know, there are far more important people at the mall than me today, and even though there's that parking space right there by the door, I'm gonna go park way in the other end so that the more important people can have that space. Never seen that happen. At the end of the day, we we generally think just fine of ourselves. Now, there are standards that we've failed at, that we're disappointed in, We, we judge ourselves negatively, that is something. But I don't think it's helpful to, to view that as self-esteem. I think generally we, we esteem ourselves too highly. T- turn to Romans chapter 12. The Bible actually warns of this. Paul warns of this clearly. And the error that Paul anticipates, just like Jesus, is not that we'll think too little, but that we'll think too much of ourselves. Romans chapter 12. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. What's Paul anticipate the error will be? We think too much of ourselves. In Philippians chapter two, you don't need to turn there again, the apostle Paul um, gives us that command, assuming that that is the problem we will have when he says, in Philippians, I turn there, chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. The command is not to think of myself as important, but to think of you all as more important than me. That's the challenge, esteeming you, valuing you, right? And so Jesus here, Contrary to, to pop psychology, the wisdom of this age, tells them, if you're going to obey me and do it rightly, if you're going to approach these impossible commands correctly, you need to start thinking and viewing yourself in relationship to me as unworthy slaves. That's what he says. So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Okay. Next, and this is sort of building on that. What that means then is this. Number two, God is not the benefactor. God is not the benefactor of our service. That's the other major point of this, that when those slaves obey and they tend the field and they tend the sheep and they come home, the master is not somehow the the beneficiary. Oh, thank you guys for helping me out. I really appreciate it. The master is not their beneficiary. No, it's what they're supposed to do. They've done their duty. They've done what they, is, is right. 
And likewise, when you serve God, if, if you are able to forgive that person the seventh time, if you have the courage to go and, and rebuke somebody in sin, you, you, have, you have not just somehow benefited God. You've done what Jesus told you to do. That's good. In Acts 17.25, the Apostle Paul corrects. And, and the reason why this is worth noting is this is prevalent in so much false religion. In Acts 17.24, Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that when you obey God, you're helping him out. You're doing him a favor. That you are somehow gracing him. That somehow you've earned merit. Which brings us to point number three, which would then mean God is not indebted to you. God is not indebted to you because you're not his benefactor, because you are not gracing him with your service, he is not now indebted and obligated to you. That is not your relationship with God. That is prevalent in so much false religion where if you do the right thing, you perform the works or the rites you do, you give the money, whatever it is, we'll start dealing with this next week as well when we look at Roman Catholicism and the Reformation. God can never be indebted to you. There can never be an arrangement where God owes you. He's somehow obligated because of what you've done to repay you. And isn't that kind of the whole point of when Jesus put up those high demands of discipleship that we looked at? Anyone must come after me, hate his mother, father, son's daughter, pick up his cross, deny him. Isn't the whole point, you gotta become my slave. You've you got to become God's servant. You are a slave to sin. God's now welcoming you into his house. So now he will make you sons and daughters, and he will, at the proper time, elevate and honor you. That's, that's his prerogative. You know, what's, what's striking here is this is how Jesus says we are to regard ourselves. Yet a little earlier, Jesus makes it clear there will be an honoring of his servants. You remember, this is one of the things I wrestled with, with what Jesus says here, and what Jesus said just back in Luke 12. Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. Now there when Jesus says that, it's supposed to be shocking. That's not the way things normally work. So the amazing reality is we are to regard ourselves as unworthy servants. We are not thinking, hey, it's about time for you to honor me. It's about time for my party. And yet, when Jesus returns, there will be an honoring. And there will be an exaltation. And the amazing thing is Christ will serve us in the eschaton, as he said he will. But (laughs) that isn't how we operate. As if somehow, when Christ returns, we've been racking up a credit list. He will then repay us. No, he will grace us when he makes much of us. He will grace us undeservedly when he honors and serves us. We are not putting him in our debt as we obey. And if we approach obedience like that, we will struggle with it. We will struggle with it. Our obedience does not indebt God to us Make him our debtor. Which leads then to point four. Failure to confront, to forgive then, is at least in part rooted in our sense of self-importance and self-entitlement. 
failure to confront and failure to forgive is rooted in our sense of self-importance and self-entitlement. So let's take this principle of, of a slave, of a servant, and plug it back into the commands Jesus gave. If we're going to, let's take confrontation, if we're going to confront rightly, it's not about us. It's not about you offending me. It's not about you treating me, of all people, the wrong way. It's about being a faithful servant whose master said, hey, if you see the other servants misbehaving, go talk to them. And so we do it not as lords and kings who have been affronted. We do it as lowly servants saying, hey, the boss, dad, told me to come talk to you because you, you're not doing what dad said. You're not doing what the boss said. And that's a very different attitude to go to someone in, isn't it? And we think of it that way. But if we think of ourselves as important, if we think of ourselves as, as entitled, then we're going to resent that. Because I'll tell you, dealing with sin is messy and it takes a long time. Uh, I'm aware of a, a situation that's taking place where for three hours, um, just in the last day or so, in one meeting, trying to work through deal with sin, it, it takes time and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And if it's about me, and, and if I'm somehow important, I'd rather avoid that if I could. I got things I'd rather do with my day. But if I'm a servant, if I'm a slave, that changes everything, doesn't it? You know, this is what God wants me to do. So however much time it takes, however messy it gets, we go do it. We get messy, okay. It's not about me. Forgiving, again, our struggle with forgiving is, but, th- but they did that to me, me of all people. They did that to, not to someone else, but me. And Jesus intensifies it, because he first says, if you look back at verse three, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your repents, forgive him. But then when he escalates it, he makes it personal. If he sins against you, escalated. Seven times in a day, escalated. But again, if we understand our, our responsibility and command to forgive is that we are slaves who've been forgiven, you think of the, uh, the parable Jesus told of the man who owed a rich man, a master, millions and millions of dollars, and he was forgiven. And then he went and found somebody who owed him $50 and started strangling him. If we remember that we are unworthy servants, that we deserved hell, that we deserve judgment, that we aren't important, powerful people, unworthy servants. The worst thing someone's done in sinning against me is sinning against an unworthy servant. It, it should take some of the wind out of the sails of resentment and anger. And just as I've been forgiven of a great debt, now my master is telling and calling on me to forgive the smaller debt. But if I don't think of myself that way, if I think of myself as important, I'm the son of a king, you know, I'm gonna inherit a kingdom, well then, it's a lot easier to think, and how dare you mistreat someone like me, who's so important. No, Jesus connects with our need to forgive our need to confront, our understanding of who we are. So if you're struggling with either of these two commands, the command to go confront sin, it scares you, you get messy, it be difficult, the other person may not like it. That does happen. You know, people don't always receive rebuke the first time they hear it. Sometimes it takes time. Then if you're resisting doing it because of that, it's rooted ultimately, you don't view yourself as a slave. If you are a slave, it doesn't matter whether it's going to be uncomfortable or difficult. That's, that's your duty. That's what your master has called you to do. And he'll give you the grace. He'll give you the strength. Have faith. Rely on his spirit. 
Or if you're sitting here harboring resentment and bitterness and anger and ill will, I would challenge you to consider who do you think you are? What do you think you're entitled to? What do you think you deserve? Are you, at the same time that you're holding on to bitterness and anger, viewing yourself as a slave? Viewing yourself as someone else's property who was bought and redeemed? I, I think that viewing that and seeing that will help with the other. Failure to confront and to forgive is rooted in our sense of self-importance and self-entitlement. Turn, turn to Galatians 6. I think this connection is made again clearly by Paul. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 1 to 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now there we've got even more than just a confrontation. This is actually helping the person change. That's even messier still. It's more problematic and more involved still. And keep watch to yourselves lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then look how verse 3 starts. 4. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What's the implication? What's the point? What will stop us from restoring each other, what will stop us from bearing one another's burdens, is thinking we're something. Do this. If anyone's caught in a transgression, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourselves as you be tempted. Bear their burdens. You need to do this because if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. Do you see the logic? This is what's going to prevent you from doing that. So get, get doing that. Go, go restore people gently. Look to yourselves. Bear their burdens. And stop thinking you're something when you're nothing. If I think too much of myself, I'm going to think this is beneath me. I mean, it's, it's easy, when, especially when you think of the sins we don't struggle with. You know, if you've never struggled with alcohol or drugs or other things, and you see someone who is, it's, it's tempting to think, why should I help them? They, after all, got themselves into this. They dug the pit they're in. They can get themselves out. And, and Paul is saying that when we think like that, we think more highly of ourselves. We think we're something and we're nothing. Thinking too highly of ourselves, having a wrong image, will directly affect our willingness and our ability to restore and deal with sin and to forgive sin when it happens. And so, if you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling with anger and resentment, if you're struggling with fear of going and talking to someone, it's not that you think too little of yourself, too much. And Jesus' instruction to you is instruction to me, is when you have done all that you were commanded, you and I are to say, we are unworthy slaves or servants. We have only done what is our duty. This brings us to a final point. Therefore, we're to take this and receive it and act upon it. We must strive to remember who he is and who we are. Again and again and again, the Bible reminds us and reiterates things. You can't read through it long before you see again and again themes show up. And you get the implication just from reading through Israel's Old Testament history that Israel as a nation keeps forgetting what they learn. And guess what? You and I do the same thing. And I need to remind daily that I'm bought, that I'm owned, that I'm not a free agent negotiating my contract. I need to remind of that daily. And if I don't actively remind myself of that when I get up in the morning, I will forget it and believe that I am a lord and a master of my own little fiefdom. And I'll act that way. 
So we need to remember who we are. We are, according to Luke chapter four, if you're, if you're in Christ, if you've looked to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've trusted in him, if you've turned to him in repentance and faith, then you are, by definition, the people Jesus said he came to preach the gospel to, which in Luke chapter four is this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So, If you're a recipient of Christ's good news, you are the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the captives. And it's precisely Jesus' hometown's unwillingness to accept that uh, diagnosis of themselves that led them to reject him. Or to bring this around full circle um, to the notion of faith, turn turn in Luke to chapter seven. Remember the centurion, right? Whose faith Jesus marveled at? What about his faith impressed Jesus? Remember, the first delegation comes and it's Jewish leaders and they insist in verse four, look at that, he is worthy. God ought to help him. He's worthy. There's some sense of indebtedness, rightness, God ought to repay him. He's built our synagogue. He's been to friend the people of Israel. Therefore, God is in some sense obligated to repay this worthy man by healing his servant. And as Jesus gets closer, the man sends his friends out. And what do they say? Speaking for him in direct quotations. Verse six, Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. Say we're unworthy servants. Seems like this is exactly what this guy's saying. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus stirred these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What faith? Faith that understands I'm an unworthy servant. And he's acting and interacting with Jesus that way. He's not playing on merit. I've been good. I've been faithful. I've done what you commanded, so now serve me. His request to heal his servant, he recognizes as a pure plea for grace. No obligation on God's part. No indebtedness on God's part. I need this grace for my servant. And I get it. I know how authority works. And I don't even deserve to have you come visit me. But the good thing is I know you're powerful. And even from where you are, you can speak the word my servant can be healed. I'm not worthy. Would you please give me this grace for my servant? That's why Jesus marveled. Ahead of Jesus' own teaching, when he has to teach the apostles, this centurion got it. That, that's, that's the f- understanding, genuine faith and true humility. Understanding what it means to have faith in God and his word. Understanding who we are. And seeing how that becomes critical in enabling us to carry out Christ's commands. You've got, you've got to understand what faith is. Faith is not willing up within yourself enough zeal and energy and passion to go do this hard thing. You know, I've got enough faith now to forgive five times, but by the end of the next hour, I think I'll be at the point where I could forgive seven. No. It's saying, 
I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how God's going to give me the grace to do it, but I am trusting that God will give me the grace to forgive this person because he told me to. I'm responding to his word in faith. And God's going to have to do it. Just as God be the one who made the water come out of the rock, just as God is the one who his power clothed dead bones with flesh, so God in his spirit will give me the power to forgive this person. I'm believing and trusting that. That's faith. And so it doesn't depend upon the degree of your faith, the, the vibrancy of your faith, but faith's object. Likewise, understanding who we are, not thinking of ourselves as lords and masters, but unworthy slaves. This is Jesus teaching to his disciples. It's the radical opposite of what the Pharisees' approach was, the radical opposite of their false religious system, and then it's very much at odds with our wisdom of today. But it's, it's true and it's important for us. We're gonna sing a closing song. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing. But our closing song celebrates this truth, that down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. That he who wants to be elevated will make himself the servant of all. That to be low and to be humble is to be exalted in God's kingdom. So let's pray and then we'll sing No Higher Calling. Lord God, these are hard words to hear. Our, our world and our culture has trained us. Our hearts are inclined to think far too highly and far greater than we ought to think of ourselves. And yet, our Lord, who even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he willingly made himself nothing. He became a servant to all. The one who is deserving of most honor, most glory, most praise, who has the most rights, he gave them up and served and died on our behalf. And now, the teacher calls the student to be like the teacher. The master calls the servant to fall in step. So Lord, give us, give us an understanding to, to grasp the weight of this. Give us the faith to receive this and to act upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.